Hey, Quinn here with a short disclaimer. As you probably guessed, this episode is about sex stuff, so do with that as you will. Also, viral is semi-scripted, which means we spend time discussing things extemporaneously and sometimes make mistakes. Though we can't correct everything, here are a couple I do want to correct from this episode. When Lindsay refers to women and uses the modifier, quote, people who can reproduce, unquote, we know that not all women have that ability, and not all men do either, and reproductive organs don't define gender. In fact, gender is a social construct, so stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Actually, don't, because this is a podcast about public health. Finally, while we discuss sexually transmitted infections as something to avoid, we mean so not to diminish or reduce the humanity of people living with STIs. We recognize that having a disease doesn't define your character. With that being said, we still want people to live their happiest and healthiest lives, and part of that involves reducing the transmission of these diseases, not stigmatizing those who live with them. Okay, preface over. Quinn out. Also, sorry about my Tom Waits growl during this episode. When we recorded this, I was getting over a cold. Enjoy the show. Lindsay. Hey, Quinn. And hello, listener. Uh, welcome to Viral. This is the podcast where two public health nerds talk about the history and current practice of the field of public health and the workforce who works diligently behind the scenes to keep us all safe and healthy. Um, it is March. The birds are singing, hopefully not too loudly in the background of this podcast, but very loud. it's possible. And just think of it as ambiance sure. to your springtime walk. Yes. Um, although maybe if you're up north, it is not quite springtime. I promise we won't go into detail about how awesome it is in Florida right now. <laughs> well, except for the pollen. Yeah, that's a good point. But um, we are not here to talk about pollen today. <laughs> We're not. But maybe that should be a public Ooh. health episode. At some point. Um, The history of seasonal allergies (laughs) goes back millennia. Uh, Anyways, we are here not to talk about that. What are we here to talk about, Lindsay? We're going to go on a journey. Okay. And we're going to talk about sex ed. But we're also going to talk about something that I really... (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, no. Uh, We're also going to talk about... uh, my research interest in sex ed, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, Dr. Grove oh boy. recently, and by recently we mean almost a year ago, <laughs> completed her uh, doctoral program, A um, not a PhD. Nope. Which degree was this? This is a doctorate in public health. And so if we were looking at the letters... It's a D little R PH. It's a derp. A derp. A derp. Yep. A derp. Um, yeah, so that's a relatively new degree option, I would say, within the past 20, 30. I would years say or last, so. at least like, yeah, like 20 years, I would say. I'll have to fact check myself on that. Yeah. But it's an option for public health practitioners who want to achieve the like mastery level status. Um, of a PhD, but not necessarily go into academic 
uh, research. You can still go into academia. I actually work currently as a visiting instructor at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, but you know, it's really nice to have the option of continue to continuing to practice in the community, which is something I really love. So, yeah. so all right, sex ed, everyone's favorite topic when they're in middle school or maybe earlier, maybe later, earlier. maybe not at all. Yeah. Uh, depending Good on where boy. you live, yeah. it's turned into kind of a political thing. But um, why is sex education a public health concern or why is it? something that the public health world uh, is concerned with? Well, as we know, uh, sex is a natural act that humans have engaged in since, well, the dawn of mankind and womankind and, you know, personkind. Personkind. Humankind. Well, between two married people. No. Once they... <laughs> No, marriage is a social construct. Anyway. Oh, I love that song. Oh, yeah. It's like my favorite new jam. Marriage is a social construct. <laughs> yep. My album's dropping tomorrow. Anyway, um, so sex education is a public health issue because, unfortunately, because people engage in sex, sometimes they do it unsafely. And when we say unsafely, we typically mean it's unprotected, you know, making the likelihood of contracting a sexually transmitted disease like chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, uh, trichomoniasis, uh, HIV, making it um, much more likely when you're not using protection or you're engaging in high-risk sexual activity. And of course, there's different types of sexual activity. Um, you know, it's not just your run-of-the-mill vaginal intercourse. There's lots of ways that people have figured out ways to pleasure themselves and their partners. Um, and unless you didn't know, Virginity is a social construct. So there's a lot of social constructs and when we think about sex and in particular sex education. Um, and sex education is a really great prevention strategy for addressing sexual health concerns, which we as public health practitioners try to, you know, I don't know, stop. We don't want people to get HIV. We don't want people to have unplanned pregnancy and we want people to lead healthy lives. Um, and in particular women or people that um, can reproduce, we wanna make sure that they have autonomy and agency in making decisions for themselves regarding their reproductive health. So sex education is extremely important, not just for you know, knowing how your parts work and understanding where babies come from. It also has to do with inclusivity. It has to do with making sure that every person has access to sexual health information, which we will get to, um, and making sure that it's medically accurate. You know, we, unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, we live in the time of the internet, which as we all know, is just a broker of truth, right? Yeah, nothing but Nothing but credible information out information there. Out there. Uh, we know that teens especially, uh, be, if they have a lack of sex education, they're more likely to get that information from their friends and pornography. Because guess what, guys? Pornography is super easy to get access to on the internet, in case you didn't know. I learned that from Avenue Q. 
Oh, did you? Mm. There's a song, The Internet is for Porn. <laughs> wow, I'm impressed that you're getting kind of so much information. I, I okay. by myself. Oh, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting uh, avenue that you've gotten some of your information from. No pun yeah. intended. Um, so, yeah. <coughs> but anyway, mm-hmm. um, my particular interest in, in the public health realm as a public health practitioner is access to sex education. Um, it's kind I, of an umbrella Yeah. Topic. Yes. Yeah. And it started, I've talked about this before, in college when I coordinated the Safer Sex Patrol at Central Michigan University. Go Chips. And... Uh, <laughs> I fell in love with public health. That's how I got into the field, and I've continued to work. Um, you know, I've been an HIV case manager. I've done HIV testing. I've um, I've done some sex education with foster youth. Um, and my research, in particular, my dissertation has been on making sex education more accessible for adolescents with intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, this this subpopulation um, adults with intellectual disabilities. Adolescents. With oh, intellect- sorry. Adolescents with mm-hmm. intellectual disabilities. Uh, what kind of led you down that path? And can you give me some information about what um, what I can learn as an introductory to this population? How many people are affected and what kinds of issues um, are, we, are we looking at when we talk about sex ed? Sure. So there are... Uh, in, from 2016, from the National Survey of Children's Health, there are probably more than 6 million school-aged children that have an intellectual or learning disability, or ADHD. But we're going to focus on intellectual disabilities that are defined by the American Association of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. Um, so that's a pretty large you know, swath of kids. Um, that have, you know, an intellectual disability. And, um, you know, these kids are typically, you know, they're they, they are less likely to have um, access to sex ed. Um, and I found this out firsthand. Um, the reason why I got, the reason why I became interested in this particular topic is because when I was working at, actually where I currently work now, but in a different position, um, I was a mentor to some kids that were a part of what's called a transition program. Um, and this transition program was called Stingray. And if you're from the Tampa Bay area, you'll know that, you know, we love our Stingrays. We have a baseball team called the Rays, even though it was the Devil Rays. Now it's the Rays and there's like a light sort of... To get the devil out. They took the devil out, which makes me kind of sad. But anyway, um... So anyway, the Stingray program was a um, partnership between USF St. Pete and Pinellas County Schools, and it's for kids 18 to 22 that have an IEP, which is an Individualized Education Plan, and these are kids that need just a little bit extra time to get their diploma. But transition programs are really cool because not only are they, you know, working on getting their high school diploma, but in this particular program, they were getting college credits and they were getting the college experience um, while also learning life skills. Other transition programs are, you know, very workforce development, um, vocationally focused. Uh, and But this one was really interesting because it was all about giving, you know, these kids that may not necessarily have the opportunity to be at a college campus to give them that experience. 
And so I worked on that, it was called Project 10, and that kind of was like, that was the overall project. Stingray was kind of a part of it, but not, um, it was under kind of the same department. But anyway, they asked me if I'd be a mentor, and I said, of course. And I mentored um, a couple students that were in the Stingray program, and they're in college for the first time, and they're becoming adults, and of course, they're interested in being in relationships. And so they wanted to have boyfriends or girlfriends, or they had a boyfriend or girlfriend, and so many of them had nowhere to turn for any information. Um, you know, a lot of times, like, parents may not feel comfortable, and this obviously happens with, you know, their peers, right? Parents don't necessarily feel comfortable talking to their kids about it, but then you add, you know, the, the intellectual disability on top of that, so then they, they're not even sure, like, how to make sure that it's developmentally appropriate. Yeah, um, there's kind of this, this faux pas or myth where you talk about, like, an adult who has the mind of a child and you're like well you wouldn't talk about this stuff to a child but actually it's not so much that they have the quote-unquote mind of a child it's that just certain problem solving and right. life skills experience that is difficult for them right whereas they are aware of many more adult concepts than a child is mm -hmm. and they are experiencing the world as an adult but um, a little bit differently than uh, non-developmentally developmentally impaired adult would. Right. And for the most part, you know, adolescents with, we'll just say ID for intellectual okay. disability because it's such a mouthful, but so adolescents with ID typically develop the at the same rate sexually and physically as their, you know, non-disabled peers. So there becomes this really, um, this becomes a problem because when we talk about issues like consent, that's a huge issue, especially if the if that particular they might be like of actual adult age, like let's say you're 20, but maybe you don't have your own guardianship. Um, so how do you talk about consent when they want to have a girlfriend or boyfriend or they want to have a partner? Um, they're allowed to have a partner, you know, like they're allowed to do these things, and so. Um, it's really hard for a parent, and sometimes it's just hard for parents to reconcile, and this is for any parent, to reconcile that their child wants to be a sexual being. I mean, right. that's just, in general, something that's really tough. But it becomes especially tough um, for these kids because there's a lot of stigma around sex and disability. For instance, you know, it, it's, it's a really, like, extreme spectrum. Like, some people think that if you have a disability that you're asexual, so that you you know, have no interest in sex at all, or that you're hypersexual. So like, oh my gosh, they're just gonna masturbate in public or something, you know? Yeah. And sometimes that does happen, but that's where a conversation, and you know, that's a learning opportunity to sit down with that particular, you know, individual and say, it, this is okay, but you need to do it in private. You know, like, so, but again, they don't get, you know, a lot of times they don't have access to sex ed, let alone any conversation with an adult or somebody that they trust uh, about these things. And then that opens them up for vulnerabilities. And so we're, we see high rates of sexual assault, coercion, um, and even rape among, you know, this particular population. And it only gets worse as they, as they become adults. There was actually just a story in the Tampa Bay Times um, mm -hmm. yesterday 
about this very issue. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it's really timely that we're talking about it. And so what you were discussing brings up um, something else I wanted to talk about, which is like the fact that um, when we typically think of sex ed, we think of STI prevention. Right. But what it really is, in, and I'm going to use the word comprehensive, and I want you to kind yes. of explain what that yeah. means because we see that thrown around a lot. Um, what does comprehensive sex ed mean, and like how is it different from sort of the traditional um, way that we talk about it? Sure, that's a really good question. So there's kind of like three recognized types of sex ed that we provide in the United States. There's abstinence only, which is a values-based uh, curriculum that really promotes abstinence. Wait until you're married. A lot of, t there's some religious social construction. <laughs> yeah, so, so it becomes problematic, right? Especially, you know, before marriage equality, right? So you have a you have LGBTQ kids that are being told have you can't have sex until you're married, but then they can't get married, you know. So that becomes a problem. Um, or their their gender identity. Yep. It, it doesn't match what they were assigned at birth, and they have a hard time reconciling that mm -hmm. and understanding, you know, all of the myriad issues that go along with that. Absolutely, so. absolutely, and that's. To me, you know, obviously my focus is on adolescents with ID, but I 100% support inclusive sex ed. And we'll talk about that in the context of comprehensive. So obviously abstinence only is, you can only be abstinent. There's no other choice. You know, again, it's very values-based. Then there's what's called abstinence plus, which is like, well, we really want you to be abstinent, we, but if you do have sex, like you're probably gonna get pregnant and, and get an STI, right? You know, it, it's like in Mean Girls. Yes, if you're, you have you're, sex, you will get you will get pregnant and you will pregnant die. And you will die. Yeah, so that's actually a really good that's a good metaphor for abs or for for abstinence plus because, you know, they may talk about, for instance, contraception, but they'll only talk about failure rates. Oh boy. And again, you know, both of these types of sex ed the. Uh, there's no requirement that it has to be medically accurate. There's no requirement that it has to be developmentally appropriate or inclusive, right? So uh, it, for, I'll give you a great example. The current county that we live in is technically abstinence plus. They offer a barrier protection lesson, but you have to opt in. So a student actually has to take their, their permission slip home to their parent and say, hey, can you sign this? I really wanna learn about condoms. And then their parent has to sign off. Something that a kid loves to do. Oh, I remember when I did that with my parents. No, that actually never happened. But um, so, so, but otherwise they don't, you know, if they don't bring that sheet back, then they don't get to go through barrier protection. And in Florida state statutes, it says that sex education has to be taught, you know, with the focus on abstinence in the context of heterosexual monogamous marriage. Oh boy. That is what it says in the Florida state statute. That's straight out of 1950. So alarming. It is alarming. It's alarming that's written into policy. So my favorite kind of sex ed, which I'm sure many of you will probably uh, also share in my in my excitement, is comprehensive sex ed. And I like to use, uh, you know, SECUS, which is the Sexuality Information and Education Council for the United States. That is a mouthful. Um, 
we love our acronyms in public health. Oh, yeah. We sure do. Um, they have a really great definition of comprehensive sex ed, uh, which typically is medically accurate, meaning that it uses medicine and science to, you know, state the facts, right? It can't use, oh my God, if you have an abortion, you're going to get breast cancer. Can't use stuff like that because it's not based in science. Evidence-based, meaning that, hey, has this curriculum been tested and proven efficacious and it's, you know, teen pregnancy prevention or HIV prevention? Does it do the thing that it says, says it's, it's going to do? do. Right. Yeah. Does it do those things? Like the D.A.R.E. program. Yeah. You know, did it actually prevent drug use? Mm, no. Not the really. answer to that is no. Um, is it uh, inclusive? So, you know, does it talk about, you know, non-heteronormative relationships and gender identity? So as we're trying to make, you know, an, a, more, a more inclusive classroom and more really in, an inclusive community, we need to make sure that we're including, you know, LGBTQ plus kids in sex ed because we want them to lead healthy lives, have healthy relationships, right? Um, you know, one of the things we talk about here in Pinellas is that 40% of our homeless youth identify as LGBTQ. And so we want to make sure that our kids are protected. You know, if, if, they, if they do end up homeless, um, A, they have a safe space to talk about issues regarding their sex, regarding their, you know, sexual health. Um, but we also want to make sure that they're protected when they're not in the classroom. Unfortunately, many kids who are homeless engage in survival sex. You know, we want to make sure, we just want to make sure that kids are protected and they have the information to make healthy choices. And the other thing too is that we want to make sure that sex, comprehensive sex ed is developmentally appropriate. And this kind of goes at it from two angles. One is we want to make sure that, you know, when we talk about concepts in sex ed that it's age appropriate you know that we talk about certain um you know we talk about good touch bad touch and we talk about that at an early age then we start talking about consent and and honestly consent we can talk about consent k through 12 but it's different in third grade than it is in ninth grade right. you know um and then we also again we want to talk about developmentally appropriate from the standpoint that we have kids with different learning styles and learning capabilities and that kind of goes back to you know my i guess my research on trying to make sex education more accessible for students with id because you know we have a ton of different ways that we adapt curriculum in math and reading you know, in writing for, you know, students um, with ID, we can apply those same techniques to sex ed. I would also like to say that, you know, not only are they at a high, these students are at a higher risk for sexual assault, but if they're already sexually active, they're actually at a higher risk for STIs mm -hmm. than their peers. Um, so it seems to be kind of a state-by-state -state issue. Yes. Um, what, I guess, if someone were interested in finding out where their state lies mm -hmm. on this um, issue, um, how would someone go about doing that? And like, what are some of the um, issues right now for our state, Florida, that we're working on, and uh, kind of what's next in this arena? Sure. Um, so CECAS actually puts out a, a, a they put out reports on every single state. 
um, kind of like their state of sex ed. Uh, Florida is woefully behind. Uh, they actually just, two bills were assigned to committee, one in the House, one in the Senate, and these are state bills, um, that call for comprehensive sex ed, which is incredible to me. So um, I work on both a local coalition of people that want comprehensive sex ed in Pinellas, as well as a state work group that's working on getting statewide comprehensive sex ed. And so we've been real, you know, trying to call our legislators and really push for this. And um, so we're hoping that, you know, the bills will make it past committee and not die in committee like they have for the past many years. Um, bills like these are, are always brought up and they typically die in committee. So we're hoping that this will be a change. But the one good thing about the current Florida statutes is that it does allow for home rule. So it does allow local districts to make their own policy based on what they call local needs and concerns. And so that's where we kind of have saw the door open, at least for local advocacy to change their comprehensive sex ed policy. We're right now, we're actually producing a mini video series to kind of talk about why comprehensive sex ed is important to Pinellas County residents. We're on a lime green postcard writing campaign uh, to the school board. I just recently attended a school board meeting and talked about sex ed and we're hoping to have people show up to the next workshop, which is where the school board workshops uh, current policy and issues that are going on in the school district. That's what that's what's happening at least here in the state of Florida. It's actually really necessary that we work to change policy here because we are seriously ground zero for new <coughs> HIV infection rates. So we really, th I mean, this is one prevention um, strategy that we can use that we think is really effective. So as far as next steps for this research, um, what I would like to do, I'm in the process of writing a grant to pilot uh, this curriculum that, uh, so what's kind of cool about the DRPH program is that I still do a dissertation, but it's technically called a doctoral project. And so I actually get to make something or produce a tangible product, I guess. Um, and my tangible product was... Because it's more practice-based. Exactly. So how am I going to create something that I can readily use in practice? And so my, my thought was, I'm going to assess this curriculum using what's called a universal design for learning assessment. UDL is widely used, um, and it's really meant to make curriculum accessible to all learners. So the cool thing is, is when you apply UDL to any curriculum, it's actually good for all learners, whether you right. have an intellectual disability or not. I actually use UDL in, in my college classrooms. Um, so I basically kind of went through this checklist with um, hip teens, which again is an evidence-based uh, sex ed curriculum. And so I found established components that are UDL aligned, and then I found gaps. And so in those gaps, I you know, either develop supplemental materials or adaptive t materials or, you know, suggested, hey, this would be great for some adaptive technology. You know, this would be great, you know, if we could, um, I actually learned how to caption videos uh, for my doctoral project because we offer, we have videos in the curriculum, but they weren't captioned. So just like little things like that, that just make it, again, more accessible for all different types of learners. Um, and so this particular um, grant that I'm 
writing is to basically fund a pilot. Uh, I'm currently in the process of um, securing some part, some community partners to do the pilot study. Um, you know, to look at, you know, hip teens, you know, as is, does it work with students with intellectual disabilities? And, you know, um, how can we use supplemental materials kind of for phase two to make it better and more accessible? Um, so that's kind of what's happening now. There is another curriculum that's currently being tested, but I don't think it's gone through kind of the same assessment that I've put mine through. It's called Flash, and they're doing it out in Seattle. Um, but other than that, there really is not any other curriculum out there that has really tried to make itself accessible to students with ID, which is really unfortunate. And I think even just outside of sex ed, I think UDL, Universal Design for Learning, would be really, really awesome to incorporate in any evidence-based intervention. Cool. And so I hope okay. other health educators and other like program developers really consider using UDL because it really is meant for everybody and it's not, it's not gonna make your intervention worse. So that's my plug for UDL. Nice. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, we didn't get to this in this episode, but I'm sure there's um, similar types of, I don't know, need, maybe is the right word, for uh, sex education for people with physical disabilities, mm -hmm. not just intellectual. Yeah. Um, I'm and sometimes, you know, people with physical disabilities also have intellectual disabilities. Some people... Sure. We have physical disabilities without intellectual disabilities or, you know, just varying <clears throat> across that spectrum. I've seen and a lot of articles recently about, um, you know, intimacy and sex ed for people with physical disabilities, and it's awesome. Yeah. It's definitely coming more to the forefront. Speaking of education. Yeah? I heard that Viral is going to be at the Society of Public Health Education what? annual meeting conference in Salt Lake City. Yeah, so if you are, if you happen to be attending the Sophie conference, um, we actually are doing a live session. It's a roundtable session, so we'll actually have like a bunch of people that we'll be talking to. Um, and that will be presenting on Wednesday, March 27th um, from 2.15 p.m. to 3.45 p.m. and we're session B6. So you know, if you're, if you happen to be at Sophie, you know, please stop by. Uh, we'll, we'll give you a sticker. We'll give you a sticker. We'll, we'll probably have some t-shirts. Um, so yeah, we want to kind of spread the good word about just podcasting in general and how mm -hmm. we think it's really helpful to health educators and, and people that work in public health. So, um, I know there's more people out there like us. Yeah, maybe they just haven't, you know, like, thought about podcasting as yep. a as a cool thing they can do. So yeah, so you know, you can you can totally approach us. It's totally fine. We're real. We're real people. You you might be disappointed in what you see. I don't know, you know. <laughs> hey, speak for yourself. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I am just kidding. So Quinn, you want to do our favorite? thing yeah what are what are you enjoying right now oh man i'm enjoying a few things um i am at the last episode of a great show on netflix called russian doll it is oh man fantastic is that good it looks you so weird watch it you yeah. absolutely should watch it 
it is weird, but it's funny and dark and str and strange. It's like an eight-part um, Twilight Zone episode, awesome. kind of. And Natasha Leone, who or Leone, um, who plays the lead. She's amazing. She's amazing. I don't know what she's been in. I she's been in uh, Orange is the New Black. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I haven't watched that show. Oh, okay. But I know she's been in a lot of other things that... Um, she's amazing in Orange yeah. is the New Black. Well, she's great in this, but um, that show was great. I don't want to spoil a lot of details, but essentially it has to do with uh, her character reliving the same day over and oh, over like again. Oh, like Groundhog's Day? A little bit like Groundhog's Day, except different. <laughs> All right. She keeps dying and then being sort of reborn back into the same moment um, and trying to figure out what's going on and why this is happening to her. So uh, That is fun. It's like a simple premise, but the execution is very well done. Okay. It's one of those things where you're like, don't worry about the plot of it. It's just sort of be along for the ride. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also really enjoying... Uh, a book by the uh, author Blair Braverman, who is a dog musher, a oh, dog yeah. sledder, <clears throat> and famous Twitter, Twitterer. Twitterer. Yeah. Anyways, it's called Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, and her <laughs> nice. book is amazing. It is full of um, stories about her life and how she came to be, you know, training dogs in the Arctic and, you know, being a young woman who is, like, just searching for adventure and um it's just a very well written memoir i've been kind of on a memoir spree lately so mm. <clears throat> yeah what about you i um i've been i i've been enjoying the umbrella academy i've heard that's good i've heard good things it is it is good it is good i i'm a huge ellen page fan so yeah, she's she's great. she's great um and it's I don't know. It's kind of it's really weird, um, and it's based off of a uh, off of a comic. Um, mm. But the characters are a dysfunctional family, and there's so many questions, and you're like, why? I don't understand. But it's it kind of you know you you learn a lot on the way. But it's just really weird and kind of dark. But um, and all the characters are kind of assholes. But like it's like if the Bluth family were superheroes. Is basically the premise. Cool. Which is kind of fun. Um, and what else? Um, man, I feel like I've been watching a lot of TV lately, but um, I don't know, man. I've just been, I feel like I've been doing a lot of work lately. Ooh, can I do another one? Yeah. Uh, my favorite new podcast. <clears throat> my favorite new podcast is called Punch Up the Jam. And it, up the jam. it is so good. I laugh until I cry, and I can't wait for uh, new episodes to come out. Aww. You need to get on that, because it's it's right... It basically is your alley. Like, it exists in the space. And you're on spring break now. You're right, I am on spring break. So You're right, I'm on spring break. Ooh, I have some exciting news. What's that? <laughs> I'm going to be on PBS tomorrow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so Sweet. if you didn't know, I'm like a <laughs> kind pretty of a local celebrity. I'm kind now. of no, no. award-winning local. Yeah, celebrity. I'm an award. Well, and the thing is, like, I didn't really have a lot to do with that. I just wrote the application. But anyway, um, I am an active member of our local League of Women Voters chapter. 
um, and I will sing the praises of the league all day, mm -hmm. every day, because I love it. And we just recently won a WEDU award for our awesome. voter guide. Yeah, the Yay. league puts out a... <laughs> So, so deserved was the burp, 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 burp. Yep. You're right. Um, so, yeah, we put out a nonpartisan voter guide. This year we got a grant from a local foundation to make it even better. We reached hundreds of thousands of people, which is crazy, and much more than what we did before. Um, we got an award for it. So now our local WEDU station has asked us and the other award winners um, if, if we would be on one of their PBS specials. So Sweet. I'm really excited because myself and our president will be representing the league tomorrow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yay. So bucket list item checked off. Lindsay was on PBS. On PBS. Yes. You'd make your childhood self so proud. Oh my gosh. I don't even know what she would say. She'd be like, what? So, and my inner Leslie Nope is very excited. So. So where can people find out more about Viral and follow what we uh, what we do? Well, we have a functioning website, www.viral-pod.com. Yes, it is functioning now. So um, sorry about that for a minute. Uh, we also have a Facebook and Twitter. We have not been as active on Facebook, although you, you stayed kind of active on Twitter a bit. Yeah, a little I need to get, do more. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, it, we're really sorry that it's been a little bit since we've recorded last, but, you know, life. And it's just, we've both been super busy. Yeah. So, um, but we're going to try and be better, as always. Um, and again, if you have any suggestions or if you want to make any recommendations, you know, please reach out to us. We have a contact form on the website. You can always tweet us or you know, message us on Facebook. We're happy to take suggestions from our audience because we know that public health is a field with a myriad of different topics and issues and mm -hmm. people, people that work in the field. So please feel free to reach out to us. Anything else you would like to add, Mr. Quinn? Um, no, I think that's about it. What should people be reminded of before, uh, before we- Also, leave? we are on basically any podcast catcher that you have, we're on iTunes. Please review us. Please, mm -hmm. I mean, even if it's just like giving us like a, a, a star rating, that would be great. But please feel free to write a review. Um, that's how people can find us, is when we have lots of people reviewing our podcast. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, wash your hands. It's really important. Always wash your hands. And get vaccinated. Yeah. Get your tetanus updated. Hey, yep. Thank you. Bye. Bye.